Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Mark Lewis, Global Head of Sustainability Research at BNP Paribas Asset Management, a global investment manager with about 400 billion euros under management. We cover a lot in this episode, including the history and current status of SRI and ESG investing, the difference between the two, the difference between dedicated ESG funds and incorporating ESG principles across the whole suite of investment offerings. We talk about balancing sustainability objectives with return objectives and how BNP Paribas manages that tension. We talk about how clients are a major driver behind sustainability investing. And we also have a great discussion about the path forwards with the clean energy transition, ESG's role in that process, what else matters in that transition, and how people like you and I can help. Mark Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be with you. I'm so appreciative for you making the time, especially in this crazy time. Although it it is a crazy time externally, but I don't know if given that we're sequestered here, I probably have more free time. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think I think we're all learning to live our lives a little differently. And certainly my agenda has freed up a few things. I spend normally I'm traveling a lot. I'm speaking at conferences a lot. And obviously, all of that has been shut down. So it does give me more time to think. And that's a good thing. So I don't know if you saw, but I did an episode with Kingsmill Bond a few weeks ago. My former colleague, yeah. So you guys overlapped at Carbon Tracker? We did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get your perspective too. It seems like there's probably going to be some overlap in thinking, but but also you've kind of come at it from some different places as well. So maybe maybe some distinction. So this, is, this shouldn't be like a Mark versus Kingsmill discussion. No, no. We pretty much agree on everything. Well, maybe for starters, let's just take things from the top. So BNP Paribas Asset Management. Right. What do you guys do? Okay. So we manage, you know, we manage about 440 billion euros. So I guess, you know, getting on for $500 billion of assets on behalf of clients that runs across the entire range of different asset classes, equities, fixed income, infrastructure, private debt, you name it. And my role within this large organization is I'm the global head of sustainability research. So we have a team of sustainability specialists, 25 people. On the research side, I head up a team of 10 people, 9, 10 people, analysts who are specialists in their respective sectors, but specialists from a sustainability point of view, rather than from a purely financial point of view. So I think that's the key thing. We have analysts who've spent their careers or a large portion of their careers becoming specialists in, in different sectors, but always from an ESG or sustainability point of view. So it's been an area that's been attracting increasing attention for some time. But I would say in the last two years, sustainability investing has absolutely exploded. So there is a huge growth of interest in this topic. And we're seeing all the major asset managers around the world, frankly, not just in Europe, although Europe is the leader on this, but globally, massive interest in this space. So very exciting time to be in the middle of it all. 
I'm curious. So those nine people, how do you break down the sectors in sustainability? And it's not a quiz. So if you, if you don't know all of them by heart, that's okay. No, absolutely. Well, we try and obviously we try and keep the sectors for which different analysts have responsibility thematically linked. So for example, one of my colleagues is responsible for covering all the energy sectors. That would be oil and gas. It would be the utility sector. It would be mining, metals and mining sector. Another colleague of mine covers all the different financial sectors. Another colleague looks at the more industrial type sectors. So we really try and keep the overlap as much as possible between different sectors so that the topics because sustainability is obviously a very, very wide ranging topic. My own area of expertise is climate change. Over the last 15 years, I've really looked for the last at the, for the last 15 years, I've spent my own career focusing on the overlap between energy markets and climate change. And in the same way, with the same logic, we really try and get our ESG analysts to build up an expertise across a number of sectors. But clearly, the more of an overlap there is, the better. So the logic, for example, just to take the obvious example, the logic for getting having the same analyst cover oil and gas, metals and mining and utilities is that the carbon climate change issue is the most important issue for those sectors from a sustainability point of view. So if you think about sustainability from an investment perspective, we talk about ESG. E for environment, S for social, and G for governance. And clearly, between these different sectors, there will be varying degrees of importance attached to each of those E, S, and G pillars. And in the energy, all of the energy sectors, it's really, at this point in time, it's really all about the environment, and it's in particular about climate change, right? If you think of some other sectors like the banking sector and the financial services industry, you're probably going to be more interested in governance issues, that they've got good controls in place and so on. So that's the logic for the way in which we get our analysts to focus on different sectors. So is your team then focused on the E only? No, no, not at all. I mean, as I say, I would describe it this way, that the analyst who covers the energy sectors so oil and gas, metals and mining and, and, and utilities, will spend an awful lot of his time on the E pillar because the E pillar is going to be the main driver of, of sustainability-linked issues in those sectors. I mean, right now, and this has been the case for the last four or five years, if you're operating in the energy industry, in almost any part of the energy industry, then you've been under a lot of pressure around the topic of climate change and reducing your emissions. And, and that pressure is only growing. There are certainly other topics that, that my energy analyst has to look at. You know, there are social issues around mining, for example, huge social issues, safety issues, for example, which would come under the S pillar. And there are governance issues for all companies in any sector around the world. So G is always a big part of the focus. But for energy companies, absolutely, environment and climate change would be the main focus. So I'll try asking the question a different way, just because I want to make sure that, that I understand it and for, for clarity for listeners as well. So, so it's a sustainability-focused team, right? Is it an ESG-focused team? or though, I mean, are the, is the term ESG and sustainability, are they synonyms? Yeah, pretty much. I would say yes. You know, if we really want to get into the terminology just for a couple of minutes, because it's interesting to give the historical context here, I would say until really very recently, 
so when I was on the sell side of the investment industry rather than the buy side as I am now, you know, sell side being the investment banking analyst to produce research and quote unquote sell it into the asset management industry, ESG as a name wasn't really the first name. It was SRI, socially responsible investing was was the first term. And SRI investing is really this is a self-selecting category of investors who, when they are looking to invest money, are, of course, looking for the best financial return they can get, but within the parameters of certain values that for them are very important. So in other words, so let me explain it more concretely. Of the 440 billion euros that we have under management, okay, 40 billion of that is in what we call our dedicated SRI funds in any case. We have been offering SRI funds, socially responsible investing funds, to our clients, I think since 2006. And these are not ESG, or is that term interchangeable? This is the point I'm going to, because it's a really crucial point that you've raised here. So my point there would be that investors who invest in those kinds of funds are really looking to align their values with their investments. Okay, so I'm not saying they don't want the best financial return possible. They do, but they want that return within certain parameters that maybe mainstream investors are not so concerned about, right? So there's very definitely an ethical dimension to the way those people invest. And as I say, that's already about 10% of our entire asset base under management. Now, what's been happening in the asset management industry for the last, I would say, five years with increase, and and this has been accelerating very rapidly in the last two years, is that more and more of the focus is around how do we integrate sustainability issues, not only into these dedicated SRI funds, but into all of the funds we have under management. So the challenge for us now, what we are actually in the process of doing is integrating ESG, and that's where if you like, the terminology is changing into all of our investment offerings. So every single fund that we offer by the end of this year to all of our clients will integrate sustainability issues or ESG issues into those portfolios. There will be a score, an ESG score for every company that in our investable universe. In the SRI funds, there's probably an investable universe of about 3,000 companies. Obviously, if you open it up to our entire asset base, there are 14,000 companies that that are notionally investable for our entire asset base. And and the challenge now is for us to give a sustainability score to all of those companies. Here's the crucial point. The, The crucial point, Jason, is that we're going beyond values based investing here. What we're saying as a mainstream asset manager is we think that if you take into account sustainability issues in your investment choices, whether the client cares about sustainability issues or not, we think it's in the best interest of the client to take that dimension into account because we think that over the long term, you will get a better return by investing in companies that have over the long run, a more favorable sustainability profile than companies that do not. And I think this is the trend in the asset management industry now. We're we're really moving beyond 
values-based investing. That will remain. Of course, there are going to be people who will be very strict in the parameters that they set within which they are comfortable to invest. But what we're saying is anybody who wants to invest in any of our funds in the future will be investing with us in a firm that or will be entrusting their assets to us as a firm that believes in the alpha generation capability of sustainability linked investing. In other words, we just think if a company has a good ESG score, it's likely to perform better financially over the long term than a company that has a weaker ESG score. So do you expect your clients to judge you strictly on returns relative to the benchmarks? Or are there other metrics that matter that more speak to this mission that you're describing? No, I mean, absolutely. That's what it's all about. What the entire purpose of this whole push is to say, we think taking sustainability into account in your portfolio will give you better returns over the long run. So it's it's values neutral in that sense. We just think it will give you a better financial performance. But clearly, we think that as responsible, we very much view ourselves as a long-term based investor that that takes our responsibilities towards society very seriously, that it, it, it happens to align with our values as an asset manager, but we also think it will give a better return to our clients over the long run. So there is an alignment of, of values between our sustainability strategy as an institution and the product offering we're giving to our clients. And what does it mean for a company to take sustainability into account. And and I guess a second part to that question is, I would imagine that sometimes there are things they could do from a sustainability standpoint that are not actually good for business, but are good for the environment. So are, are those things always aligned? Or, or are you just going with like the greenest thing that you can do that happens to be the best thing for, for business? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's actually, there is an entire industry out there called the you know the data provision industry for sustainability so companies like sustainalytics msci truecost these are all companies that have spent the last 15 20 years building up databases on the sustainability indicators for different sectors and different companies within those sectors and assigning scores to those companies so again the fundamental philosophical assumption is that companies that score higher on those metrics will do better over the long run. Whether, to your specific question, in some cases, there is a short-term misalignment, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head which would satisfy your question. Let's say of a company that is not subject, it's in a jurisdiction where it is not itself subject to any carbon pricing, let's say it, it produces a lot of CO2 emissions, but it is in a jurisdiction currently where there is no price on emissions. You might think rationally, they would be penalized by the financial markets if they spend more than their peer group investing in emissions reduction technology, because that would be capex that they could be spending on their underlying product, right? I think this goes to the heart of your question. In reality, what we would say is, they would get a higher score because they were taking the environment into account in a way that their peer group were, were not. And over the long term, our argument would be, and all the more so now, 
that they will reap a return from that because they will get a first mover benefit advantage when the pricing in all likelihood does come at some point. So there may be short-term misalignments of the kind you're talking about, but our fundamental belief is that over the long term, companies that, that do the right thing from a sustainability perspective will outperform their peer group over the long run. Are you essentially saying that every fund that the firm offers is an ESG fund by definition? No, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far, no, because then I think you're back to the I mean, this whole question of definitions and taxonomy is a very hot emerging topic in itself and and there will be more and more regulation around that. What I'm saying is that that's that's going back to the SRI funds. Those are the pure the pure offering, if you like, where there is clearly And those will stay? Those will definitely stay because the investors that the self-selecting group of investors, I would say, who are very concerned about aligning their values with their investments, that's a separate category of investors from the mainstream, even though there is ever rising consciousness around all of these topics, ES and G. Ultimately, at the moment, it is still the case that most people just want to see the best return possible. So ESG funds are concessionary from a return standpoint. I think that's what I'm hearing. Well, sorry, I, I, what, what do you mean exactly? So if you invest in ESG funds, you, one should expect that they will not perform as well. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I'm saying that SRI, and let's be clear again, we're talking here now about what I call the SRI funds, where people definitely are investing on a values and we make tougher, the criteria for those funds are much tougher. You know, we will exclude certain kinds of companies that perform poorly there from our investment universe. That's one of the reasons why the investment universe is smaller for SRI funds than it is for our mainstream funds. I guess what I'm saying is that this is the sense in which we're integrating it in a mainstream way. So to your point, which I think is a very important point, Am I saying, by definition, all of our funds are ESG funds? I'm not going that far. I wouldn't make that statement. What I would say is our fund managers in the future are going to be judged not only on their financial performance, but on how well their fund performs from an ESG point of view when compared against the benchmark. In other words, we will be assigning an ESG score to the benchmark and we'll be assigning an ESG score to every company. And, and the benchmark obviously ultimately reflects the weightings of the companies in there. And every fund manager will have to show that their portfolio of stocks at any given point in time has a better ESG score than the benchmark. And they will also have to show, by the way, that, that their carbon footprint is lower than the carbon footprint of the benchmark. So that's the way in which we are saying we're integrating ESG into all of our funds. That is not the same thing as saying all of these funds are by definition ESG funds, because that's, you know, ultimately that's for the regulators to decide where the definition is drawn of what constitutes an ESG fund and what does not. But clearly you can see that it already involves a high degree, a high degree of coordination between us as the sustainability analysts and the portfolio managers. So why do you think ESG gets such a bad rap? Like, what do the critics say and, and why? You know, that question begs another question, which is, what is the bad rap you're referring to? I mean, it's, it's a very broad topic. I mean, 
I think you have to separate the name ESG from the broader concept of greenwashing, if that's what your question is getting at. Well, so so there's two different scenarios. One scenario that I've that I hear, and I mean, I'm just in the cheap seats, right? That's why we're having this discussion is because I don't know and I want to learn. But one thing I hear is, hey, you know, what should I do with my 401k in order to align it with my values? And then the answer is just put it in funds that are aligned with your values. Check out ESG, right? So that's kind of one side. And then another side is, oh, I mean, ESG means well, but it doesn't actually deliver. Either either it's it doesn't return or it's it doesn't actually return in terms of doing good. Like, did you know that fossil fuel or I mean, I don't even know what, what the objections are. I just know that there's a there's a contingent of the traditional investment management world that doesn't seem to take ESG seriously. And, and I don't know why that is. Right. Okay. So there's a couple of issues in there with your question. So I think let's take the first one, the idea that ESG shouldn't have anything to do with a mainstream investment portfolio and that all you should be concerned about is your return. I mean, I think there, look, there simply isn't enough long-term backtesting, academic research on this topic to be able to form a clear judgment on that. But very clearly, obviously, from everything I've already been saying on this in this conversation, we take the very strong view that integrating sustainability will improve performance over time. At the end of the day, it will be for the market to judge. But if you look, and, and of course, there's a, there's a kind of transatlantic divide going on here as well, Jason, in the sense that Europe is further down the track on this already than the United States and North America. But what you're seeing in Europe is a huge flow of funds into ESG and ESG themed funds. I mean, another another dimension to this sustainability investing topic is the rise of thematic funds, you know, water funds, low carbon funds, lots of, you know, ideas around this different thematic funds that have emerged. And at the end of the day, the market will judge, you know, who's right. But our strong belief is that integrating issues that can have a, a clearly can have a financial impact is simply not true to say that taking the environment into the account into account can't help your financial performance when increasingly around the world regulators are looking at environmental impacts and carbon emissions in particular but the way you the way you use water if you're more efficient in your management of water that can have an impact on the bottom line i mean we're not doing this for fun you know we're not integrating esg issues into our portfolios just because we think it's the right thing to do even though we happen to think it is the right thing to do we're doing it also because we think it will improve financial performance a company that's that's doing more and is thinking harder about how it manages the inputs, the water, and how it deals with the outputs, the waste of manufacturing a product, for us is likely to have a better grip on, on the fundamentals as well. But very clearly, if you're more efficient in the way you use your resources, and therefore, if you're thinking about your impact on the environment, there will be clear financial benefits from that as well. So that, I guess, is the point. Right. This is this is something that we think can have a clear financial impact. Companies that are looking to reduce their carbon emissions over the long term ultimately are going to reap a financial benefit from that. And they're certainly going to reap a reputational benefit from that. And do you think ESG as it is currently set up? So putting aside returns for a minute, does it actually fulfill the promise as it relates to mission? Yeah. So that's the second question you raised. I mean, 
I think this goes into the much broader question, and we would need a whole other conversation just on that one question to do it justice. This is this is the the whole topic of greenwashing, right? Which is a danger. I mean, clearly, the more that ESG goes mainstream, the greater the focus will be, or the greater the risk that that some people using it as a marketing opportunity rather than really going into depth in the subject themselves. So clearly, I wouldn't for a minute dismiss the risk around greenwashing as ESG becomes more of an established feature of the investment, the asset management industry landscape. However, again, the companies that do the hard work and think about this hard and do it holistically. So the way we do it, for example, I can't speak for other companies, but the way we do it is I've mentioned we've we've talked a lot about how we approach this from the research side and that I lead a team of analysts that are sector specialists and look at it on the research side. But the research and the integration of our research rankings of companies is only one part of what we do as a sustainability team. We also have a very strong stewardship focus. So we have specialists who effectively spend all day every day engaging with companies and thinking about how to engage with companies to get companies to to do the right things around a lot of the topics that that we care about. And we take our voting responsibilities very seriously. You know, we put a lot of time and effort into engaging with companies and then voting at their annual general meeting. So we want to be engaged owners of companies and engaged investors in companies rather than simply passive investors who are going to vote through whatever management proposes at the annual general meeting. So it's it's all of one piece. And, the, and the, I think the asset managers that can prove that they are integrating, not only integrating ESG considerations into their investment decisions, but are also integrating ESG into the way they themselves, they, they comport themselves across all of their activities are the ones in, in the future that people will say, well, that they are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So who is the customer for the research that your team produces? Is it internal, external, or both? Well, it's a bit of both, obviously. But I mean, first and foremost, it's internal because, you know, it's it's for the portfolio managers that are managing the portfolios. They need to get our view. So that's that's our primary audience. At the same time, I think where we think we have something interesting and important to say for the entire industry, we are very keen to get that message out. And I, my, I myself last year, for example, published an in-depth research report called Wells, Wires and Wheels, which was really a deep dive analysis of the improving economics of, of renewable energy compared with oil. And I came to the conclusion that over the long term, the oil price will have to fall to $10 a barrel in order for gasoline to remain competitive with renewable electricity in tandem with electric vehicles. And when I say long term, it's like 10, 15 years. And for other reasons, but here we are nine months later and the oil price has got down to $20. We're not a million miles away from $10 a barrel, right? I mean, we're in a, we're in a very volatile world. But my point is where we have ideas that we think deserve a wider audience, we certainly look to publish in-depth white papers as well. And as a former sell-side analyst, I see that very much as part of my job to get these ideas out into the public domain and in, uh, in front of a wider audience. Is there a progression in terms of the criteria that your portfolio managers are using to kind of live these values across the portfolio 
is there like a small, well-defined entry point, and then they have a more dis, you know, like a more comprehensive purview over time in this regard, or is it more like what you see is what you get, and as long as we stay disciplined over time, then we'll live that day in and day out, and we already are. Yeah, I think it's more of the latter. I mean, I, I think you know we generally have, you know, one of the interesting things to me as someone who's been looking at the interface between energy markets and em- environment climate change in particular, for 15 years now. I've been doing this kind of as long as the topic has been around, right? I mean, and that's because I was a mainstream analyst. I mean, I was a, I was an energy analyst. I was covering utilities. And a lot of people would say utilities, very boring industry, very technical industry. And I might agree with you on some aspects of that. But the interesting thing about the utility industry is Power generation, because of the CO2, it's the largest carbon dioxide emitting industry in the world. And so in Europe, a carbon market was introduced as early as 2005, and that impacted the utility industry more than any other industry. So I became very interested in the dynamics of carbon pricing, wrote a lot about that. At the time, I was working for Deutsche Bank, and they expanded very aggressively into commodities trading. And so I found myself working in a about as mainstream, unreformed, kind of old school market environment as you could think of. Commodity traders are not known generally for their politesse and finesse and for taking sustainability into their everyday thinking. But because the great thing was, because we were talking about a commodity, carbon emissions that had a price, It became the same as trading oil or trading copper or trading gold, right? If you put a price on carbon emissions, however abstract that might sound, it becomes a tradable instrument just like anything else. And a a ton of CO2 is, is from a financial trading point of view, the same thing as a barrel of oil. It's It's got a dollar price. You can buy it and sell it. There's a forward market in it, you know, and, and it takes this whole climate change dimension out of the equation because don't forget in 2005, that was a very, climate change was still a very, very hotly debated issue, let's say, from the science of it. And it still is in some quarters, but thankfully not not in Europe anymore. But my point would be this, that so I've, I've kind of followed this trajectory where the sustainability dimension has been at the core all along, but it's it's also been a very neutral thing because if you can put a price on something, if you can quantify it, you neutralize the issue from a from this whole argument you mentioned earlier about the school of thought which says sustainability shouldn't really be taken into account it's all about the hard dollars well this is about the hard dollars because there's a price on carbon emissions in the context of the european carbon market but to come back to the to to the question you 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 were just raising the reason i give that background is for the following reason you say do we live these values day in day out i perhaps the biggest surprise and it was a very pleasant surprise to me Coming from a very mainstream background, including, you know, the rawest of of red meat kind of financial markets in commodities, I was very impressed by the extent to which the portfolio managers at BNP Paribas Asset Management had already developed this kind of mindset. So I I would say we we do, in our thinking, we are thinking about this on a day-to-day basis. It might be a European thing as well, although we have a great team in Boston, you know, that that are very focused on on ESG as well. And how do you guys think about divestment, if at all? Well, look, I mean, 
I've always been, okay. So let me give you my personal view and then tell you how how we think about it. My personal view is that I, I know this has been a theme that's been around for a long time: the sort of division between engagement and divestment. And to me, I don't take a kind of theological view on this. I think they're complementary approaches. I think engagement is quite literally the flip side of divestment because if you have if the risk of divestment is there the engagement is going to be all the more powerful i think so so divestment to me is always something that is there in the background as a possible option if the company you are engaging with does not seem to be willing to move in the way that that you as an investor want it to move I think there's a very important role for divestment as a movement. I think, for example, the divest-invest movement where, you know, that puts pressure on investors and on foundations and universities to divest from their fossil fuel holdings has played a very valuable role generally in the investment landscape because it has forced companies to take these issues seriously. And it, and it makes life uncomfortable for companies and it gives asset managers that are, are very keen to engage an extra argument our approach as a firm is to engage wherever possible initially and as i mentioned earlier we have a very strong focus on stewardship we take that very seriously as long-term investors and we try to engage with our the companies we're invested in and some companies that we're not invested in that we might want to invest in in the future to move in the direction that we want to see them moving. And, you know, the ultimate sanction is to sell the shares or to sell the bonds if we think that they are not moving after we have been engaged with them over a period of time. And, of course, you know, the trigger for that will be different in different cases. But, but, it, but it's there as an option if, if companies are not moving in the way that we would like to see them move. I mean, given what's been happening with COVID-19, where the global economy essentially is more or less shut off, at least for for some period of time, how do you see this playing out? I mean, when this when the spigot turns back on, do you do you see a bunch of the progress we made being displaced by just looking to get as as much infrastructure built as quickly as possible, regardless of of how clean it is? My personal view on that is the more I think about this, because obviously <laughs> everyone's thoughts have been developing at lightning speed over the last two, three weeks as we adjust to a new reality. The more I think about it, the more confident I become, actually, the more optimistic I become that the long-term dimension will be taken into account and that people and governments will view this as an opportunity. I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, we're all having to change our behavior in the short term. And it makes us, we've got the time to think about how we might start thinking, rethinking aspects of our behavior when things go back to normal. You know, am I, as somebody who, given the nature of my role, spends a lot of time speaking at a lot of conferences, quite often in the US or in Asia, not just in Europe, am I going to go back to getting on so many airplanes in the future? That, I, I mean, I think... That is one example of a sector where I think there are, there, there, there's, there's a real question mark now over whether the aviation sector goes back to where it was before this crisis. And the longer, the longer we are in lockdown, obviously, the greater the uncertainty about, about that will be. But the other, the other aspect to this 
is that it's a fantastic opportunity for governments. If you're thinking about where they can put dollars to work, not only to get people back into the economy quickly once we are out of the lockdown, but how we can make very important long-term infrastructure investment decisions in a way that will, at one and the same time, put people back to work, but also provide a more sustainable future for future generations. I think I think governments have got an opportunity now to think about that. And that, uh, let me put it this way, if I can draw a parallel between the, the terrible cost, human cost, health cost, and economic cost that the coronavirus has imposed upon us as a global community, and the increasingly burdensome human and financial cost of climate change, and that will only become greater over time. The key parallel I would draw between the two is around the issue of fragility and resilience. You know, what the, what the COVID-19 virus has shown is that as a globalized world, we are more fragile than we thought we were. But it's also shown that as human beings, we, ad- we can adapt very quickly to new threats when they emerge, and we can change our behavior when it emerges. And, and, you know, the social distancing, for example, is a very good, that goes completely against our social instincts as a social animal, as a species. And yet we're doing it for the greater good, for our own good, but for the greater good as well. And I think that's a key lesson that we could learn going forward to deal with the climate challenge in the future, that that is also a very big and, and, and a longer term threat to, to us as a species. And the right conclusion to draw, in my view, it seems, speaking me personally, is, is I would say that the key lesson is the fragility that has been revealed by the coronavirus in terms of our public health systems, in terms of economic supply chains, in terms of how much we depend upon one another, that the extent to which we're interconnected means that we should be thinking about being much more resilient for future pandemics. But the read read across for the climate change debate is we need the equivalent of social distancing policies in the short run to deal with with climate change. and, And the parallel that springs to mind there is carbon pricing. You know, that would be a a way of slowing. If if you think of the pandemic as manifesting itself in the form of the rate of infection, we can think about the atmosphere and the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. We can think of that as a kind of atmospheric infection rate and we need to slow down the rate at which CO2 and other greenhouse gases are being pumped into the atmosphere. And the way we do that is via putting a price on those emissions in the same way that we slow down the infection rate of the coronavirus by implementing social distancing. Okay, And in both cases, social distancing and carbon pricing, these are policy responses that can slow the rate of infection and ultimately reverse the rate of infection, get it going down again in the right direction. And then the broader piece is, and and, and this is more related to your question, I guess, it's the resilience aspect. How do we build greater resilience over the longer term? And that goes more to the long-term kind of infrastructure spending that we could have to make the world more resilient to the impact of climate change that we know will already be happening. Because 
a lot of the warming, future warming is already baked in because of the choices we've made in the past. So whatever we do from today onwards with regard to climate change, the world will continue to warm. It's just how quickly it will continue to warm and to what degree it will continue to warm. That's that's where the debate is now. But there is definitely going to be further future warming, which is already baked in, and we have to become more resilient. And that means greater infrastructure spending on adaptation to the future climate change that we know will come. So that's a great infrastructure spending opportunity for governments to think about, making our world more resilient to future climate change impacts and providing employment opportunities as well going forward. So I think, you know, there are lessons that can be learned from this. And I'm I'm actually, the more I think about it, more optimistic that governments and individuals will be able to respond positively to the challenges going forward. Because as I say, it's revealed, the coronavirus has revealed fragility, but it has also revealed solidarity and interconnectedness. And I think that's a very positive lesson that we can take away from this. So if, if you had a big pot of money, call it $100 billion, that was outside of the scope of investable apps, assets for the firm, it was more just a pot that you could allocate towards anything else besides what you guys do to accelerate the clean energy transition, where would you put that money and how would you allocate it? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's all about energy storage now. It's really about, as renewables become more and more important to the global energy system, we're going to need more storage. And to really solve the problem of climate change, we have to get renewable energy to 70, 80% of the energy mix globally by 2050. If we're going to do that, we're going to need a massive increase in the energy storage capacity. So I would be putting as much money as possible into R&D on energy storage and into incentives, you know, subsidies for, for energy storage. Because the biggest lesson of all that I have learned in the last 15 years following the development of renewable energy in the power sector is that The reason the costs have fallen much more quickly than anybody thought possible is that there's been a virtuous feedback loop at work between the public policy incentives that were put in place in the the first instance and the technology and investment response you get to that. So if you have governments giving subsidies on certain kinds of renewable energy, that's attractive for people to come in and put money in there. When the money is put in at scale, you get economies of scale. The cost of the energy comes down, and that makes it easier for governments to set more ambitious targets, again with with incentives, but on a falling slope, declining slope. And again, that leads to a second wave of investment. And then the whole process keeps repeating itself at ever greater speed and with ever greater momentum. And that is why the cost of of renewable energy has come down so much. I'm optimistic and confident we can we can repeat that with energy storage, but it needs to be kick-started and it needs to be kick-started now. And that's what I would do with the notional 100 billion that you're you're giving me here. And last question is just for anyone listening who's trying to figure out where to anchor themselves to try to maximize their impact in accelerating this transition. What advice do you have for them? Well, you know, I guess there's two, two aspects to that question as I would read it. One is what to do with your money and what to do with your everyday habits, which comes back to the question we were just discussing about the read across from, from the coronavirus and, and how we can rethink some of our, some of our daily behavior. So that, that's, if you take the second 
part of that question first, I would say, you know, we all need to think more about how many how many flights we take in the future, how much meat we consume in our diet, how often we take the car when we could be taking the public transport or the train. These these kinds of day-to-day issues, energy efficiency, how often we leave lights on, how often we leave, you know, simple changes. I Again, I would make the parallel with washing your hands for coronavirus. We all wash our hands every day anyway, but with the coronavirus, we're washing our hands more carefully, we're washing them for longer, and we're washing them more frequently. It's not a big hardship if it's going to stop the coronavirus spreading, right? So we're all doing that very willingly. In the same way, there are simple changes that you can make to your everyday habits being more conscious about energy efficiency, thinking about the best way of moving from A to B, thinking about the food on your plate and the environmental impact of that. These are all things as well that we can we can think about more clearly to have a real impact at an individual level. And then, you know, from an investment point of view, it's looking at the investment opportunities that are available that are going to give you, well, back to the very beginning of this conversation, right? It's how can I get the best return whilst at the same time making the best impact from a sustainability point of view? And again, you know, that's looking at low carbon investment opportunities. It's looking at investing in companies that take the social dimension of their contract with society seriously. So, you know, how many women have they got in senior positions? You know, the gender diversity part of the equation. What's the pay ratio between the guy at the top and the average worker in the firm? These kinds of things. Thinking seriously about how companies are integrating these long-term factors into their business model, I think, is the way that as an individual investor, you you can make the best impact. And what about with someone's time or their profession? Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, <laughs> I mean that comes down to your individual choice, right? And and what you want to do with your life. I wouldn't I wouldn't venture to offer an opinion on how people should follow their career. They you you follow your heart and you follow your passion, I guess, and you do whatever you can to make that choice as sustainable as possible. Anything I didn't ask you, Mark, or any parting words for listeners? I think I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there, Jason. It's been a pretty intense conversation, which I've enjoyed greatly. I guess no. I, I think I think we've covered everything there. I mean, just prepare for a future where you know my parting message would be: prepare for a future where sustainability is going to be an increasingly important aspect of investment choices and of the way we live our lives. I think it's unavoidable, and I think in that sense, again. The lasting impact of the coronavirus once we're through this acute crisis phase will be all about how can we rethink some of our habits? How can we become less fragile in the future and more resilient across all aspects of the way we live our lives? Great. Well, I really enjoyed this discussion and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review 
on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.